This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan Ingersoll and Rooney and InsideCounsel.com. Here's your host, Craig Mills. Hello and welcome back to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Craig Mills, a shareholder at Buchanan Ingersoll and Rooney and the co-chair of the firm's litigation section. On our show, we talk to general counsel from around the country that are leading the way within their organizations. Our guest today is Joe Nauman. He's executive vice president and chief legal and administrative officer at a Kushnet company, a global leader in the production of golf equipment and clothing for brands like Titleist, Footjoy, Scotty Cameron, and others. Joe has been with the company in some form or fashion for more than 17 years and was actually responsible for the creation of Kushnet's in-house litigation team. Thanks for being with us today, Joe. It is a real pleasure to have you on the show on this beautiful spring day when I'm sure lots of people are bouncing your Titleist products off of trees and splashing them into ponds all over America. Well, Craig, it's good to be with you, and, and I certainly <laughs> hope that is the case. We're looking forward to a strong a strong spring start this year. Well, I hope you have season. it, too. And I'm glad, as I said, you stopped by to talk to us about the very unique challenges that face someone who is guiding the legal ship in a company like Kushnet with so many famous brands uh, that sell for not insignificant prices because of the quality behind them. So I wanted to start off just having you chat a little bit about Kushnet, how you created the in-house legal team at that company basically from scratch, as I understand it. How did that begin? And, and for a company like Kushnet with such important IP, how did you go about building what is a really unique in-house legal team to protect the company from uh, IP infringers? Well, Craig, I, I go back to the founding of the company. Um, Kushnet was founded in Massachusetts uh, actually back in 1910 as a rubber processing company. And it wasn't until the mid-30s when um, the founders of the company, who were avid, one of them was an avid golfer, uh, decided that, that he could make a better golf ball than that was out there in the marketplace, one that was higher quality, more consistent. And, uh, and so he, he hooked up with, a, with a, a friend who was an MIT graduate, and they went to work uh, to build the highest performing, most consistent, best quality golf ball in the market. And they introduced the Titleist Golf Ball in 1935. And that brand and the product have continued to grow in, in stature and, and acceptance in the marketplace to the point where, um, you know, we're about 50% of the market today under the Titleist brand, uh, and that's worldwide. So I came into the picture in 1991. I was actually uh, part of the in-house team at Fortune Brands, which was the parent company of Acushnet at that time. And Fortune Brands owned a number of consumer products companies, including Jim Beam and uh, some home and, and hardware companies and some office products companies and, and a bunch of other companies. But they asked me to, to look after the Acushnet work in addition to doing the general corporate work for uh, some of that Fortune Brands as well. Uh, it, it became evident very quickly in doing the Acushnet work that they needed um, a more uh, more attention. They needed they needed help with intellectual property. They needed help with distribution issues. Um, there were a whole host of things that just weren't getting the attention they needed um, from the from the parent company perspective. I uh, established a relationship with the CEO Wally Uline, and um, he was able to convince the management at Fortune to allow me to move from Fortune Brands in Connecticut to the offices of the Kushner in, in Massachusetts. 
once I got here, I very quickly understood um, that that there was more to it than even I expected, and um, and and the work just kept coming, and uh, I got very integrated into the business and to the to all facets of the business, um, the sales function, the marketing function, the R and D function, um, you know, just across the board. And as a general practitioner, I knew I wasn't capable of handling all of that, and uh, I had to rely on outside counsel and other outside resources. Um, but as that as that work continued to grow, the outside bills continued to grow, and we also had a bit of a, a re- revolving door issue where. Um, you know, new young lawyers would come onto the account, and especially in the R&D function and, and the patenting area, uh, and wouldn't stay very long, and then we'd have to reteach the next group of people coming through. And so I very early on decided that the best way to manage and to really provide the, the best service to the organization was to take as much of that as possible in-house. Um, I hired uh, a general corporate lawyer like myself as the first person, and the second person I hired um, the partner at the law firm that we were using um, at doing our outside patent work. So from there, we just continued to build on that um, as 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 the work grew. Instead of farming it out, we would continue to hire inside uh, to the point where now we're I've got nine patent lawyers and I've got um, three general corporate lawyers, and then myself uh, managing the, you know, all of the business of the legal business of the company. Um, we're totally integrated into the company. Um, we get we're not a we're not in a situation where people come to us for approval or forgiveness. Um, they come to us at the very front end of things and and ask us to help them work through issues as they're developing projects and developing business plans and things like that. Uh, so we're very fortunate. And I, and I think at the end of the day, what that yields is we're more cost effective, we're quicker in being able to respond to issues. I think we have very uh, much higher quality product that we produce because we're so close to the business and so close to the people. The, the lawyers that I have working with me, um, they have built equity. They they know our business. They know our patent portfolio. They know our competition's patent portfolio in a way that you just couldn't get that equity and that knowledge base built anyway with outside counsel. And they and they establish relationships with all the people they work with in house, um, which which makes that flow, that workflow, and that that knowledge flow so much easier. And then it also allows us to be more strategic about what we're doing because we see the big picture. Um, we work very closely with R&D and the other functions, and we really understand the business and what they're trying to accomplish, and we can help them with the strategy and how to move things forward um, in the most cost-effective way. It makes sense, and particularly in, in your area with the IP, the idea of bringing lawyers in-house who get to know the technology, get to know the competitive technology, so you're not constantly paying for a young associate someplace to get on the learning curve and learn more about your industry. Uh, are there, and, and I know this is something that a lot of general counsel struggle with, is bringing things in-house as opposed to outsourcing them, and I appreciate you going through those efficiencies there. Is there anything in terms of legal services that you've you found over the years you really need to farm out because it's just more efficient to do it that way rather than build the expertise in your own building? 
you know, in particular, transactional work and litigation. Um, we're just not geared for that. We're geared for the day-to-day work, you know, with the lawyers integrated into the business units. They work very closely with the business folks day-to-day, um, and their plate is full with that kind of work. So when a transaction comes up or when litigation comes up, we definitely need to go outside for expertise. Um, just we don't have the manpower to do it, and we don't do it every day, so we don't have the expertise Understood. to do it. I'd like to move on and to talk about um, a very unique organization in which you're involved, an industry organization, uh, the U.S. Golf Manufacturers Anti-Counterfeiting Working Group. And Could you tell us about that and, and how that all began? Because this show is about people who are involved in, in innovation within the legal field, and one area where I think you've really been an innovator, along with some other GCs within the golf industry, is your work with this anti-counterfeiting working group. Could you just briefly talk about the group, how it began, who's in it, and, and how it operates? Sure. So we currently have six members of the group. Um, it's ourselves, Ping, Callaway, TaylorMade, Cleveland, Zrixon, and PXG. And those six companies really represent the bulk of the manufacturing of golf clubs in the United States. You know, there's some additional manufacturing uh, coming out of Japan. But for the most part, uh, on a worldwide basis, those six companies represent probably somewhere around 70% of all the golf clubs sold worldwide. So this really started back in the late 90s, early 2000s. There really wasn't a big counterfeit problem back then, but there was something that we called knockoffs. And these were products that were made to look identical to our products, except they didn't use our trademarks, didn't use our brand names. Uh, for instance, in the Cobra, uh, in the Cobra brand, they had a, uh, a product called King Cobra. Well, the knockoff looked exactly like the King Cobra, only called it <laughs> King Snake. And there was, a, there was a lot of that going on at the time. Um, and we were each individual, each company was attacking that on their own and, and trying to address the issue. Um, but we actually, you know, individually connected with some folks at, in customs who wanted to work with us as a group, and they reached out to us. And we were able to do some pretty big cases with them uh, because we had the scale of the whole industry, the U.S. industry at least, working together. Um, toward the mid-2000s, the, the issue turned from knockoffs to counterfeits. Now people were making products that did use our trademarks and did use our brands, and, and we got more concerned about that, and, and it was really all coming out of China. Um, and based on the success that we'd had with customs on the knockoff front, I went around to the other GCs uh, for the, the my competitors and said, hey, listen, why don't we get together and, and formally – work together, share information, share costs, share resources, and and as a group, as an industry, attack this issue. Because it was extremely expensive and extremely ineffective to do it on an individual basis. And so that's how we got started. Now, you're working with competitors on this initiative. Not only that, you're working with competitors who are lawyers on this initiative, which I'm sure makes the relationship even that much more smoother. Was it, was it challenging to get together with people who, you know, competitively, you're, you're out there in the marketplace fighting them every day, 
but you could were you able to set that aside and and work together towards this common threat was were there difficulties in that or was there sort of a common understanding a common bond right off the bat you know there because it was the lawyers who were the the focal point here uh, i think it was easier to set the competitive issues aside and 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 understand and appreciate the common threat and and understand that if we worked together we had more of an opportunity to address that threat the one big thing for us to overcome though was there had been some litigation in the industry um, several years earlier where there was an industry group that had gotten sued on antitrust grounds and so there was some scar tissue among the various companies and there was a lot of concern that we would go back and, and, and create that uh, or create a situation where we had some exposure there. And so one of the things that we did was we engaged antitrust counsel and got them involved very early. We drafted a charter um, and, and we really, really made a point of sticking to the, the ground rules laid out by antitrust counsel to make sure that we didn't didn't um, you know create that kind of exposure and I think that really helped people get over that hump and and we've we've been together since 2004 um, and we haven't had any issues along those lines and I think we've had a, a significant amount of success in addressing the counter I'm glad issue. you addressed that Joe because that was something I was going to follow up about I mean whenever obviously as lawyers when we see people who are dread competitors most of the time getting together in the same room and talking to each other People who uh, have suspicious minds, uh, as Elvis said, uh, would maybe be- think that you're carving up markets, you're setting prices, something like that. Your solution was to engage outside antitrust counsel, put together a charter. Was there anything else? Do you have third-party or outside monitors at your meetings? Do you, do you have? Are there other mechanisms for providing for transparency to dispel any idea that there's anything anti-competitive going on in, in these organizational meetings? No, what we do, though, is our antitrust counsel attends every meeting, whether in person or on the phone. Um, we take, you know, he takes notes. There are minutes. Um, and, you know, we make sure that we reiterate the antitrust guidelines at every meeting so that everybody, you know, has that front and center and doesn't lose sight of, of, of that issue. Um, and I think that we've, you know, everybody's been very, uh, cooperative, but very cautious and uh, and true to uh, those principles, so that we didn't have that kind of uh, that issue now, crop through up. Through this group and also individually, your company's not only gone after the manufacturers of these knockoff and counterfeit goods and and gone after them at the source. You've also gone after the websites where the counterfeit clubs are sold. And I know for people who are faced with running patent enforcement campaigns, sometimes that's uh, a, a difficult decision to make. They don't know, should I attack it at the source where it's manufactured, particularly if it's in some place like China, or should I try to get it at the counter, as it were, and stop it at the point of sale, understanding that in this day and age with all the different websites, uh, there are, there's an awful lot more store counters than there were in the old days. Which of these did you find to be more effective? Is it an either-or? Should you do both? What would your advice be? to someone who's thinking of launching an enforcement campaign for counterfeit or knockoff consumer goods that are coming in fairly large volumes to the United States. Yeah, and I I do think that's an industry-specific issue for us. We've never had the problem of counterfeit product at legitimate retail in the United States. 
Um, our problem has always been the counterfeit problems or the counterfeit products being at retail outside of the U.S. in China and some other markets. Uh, but we've never really had a problem with it with the the you know the the thick sporting goods or the um, you know the other major golf retailers selling counterfeit products in the U.S. So we've been we've been very fortunate there. So we focused our we've concentrated our efforts both in terms of as you said the manufacturing base trying to attack it at the source and then going up the food chain to the to the distributors and then to the retailers. Um, but what's happened over time is because we've been so um, aggressive in attacking the, the whole chain, um, they've gone underground and they're harder to find and there's less of them, you know, there, there are less uh, points for us to attack. Um, but what has happened, and, and it's happened in our industry as well as others, is the, the Internet has exploded, and the opportunity to find product on the Internet is, 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 is greater than ever. And so we've had to shift our priorities a little bit, and um, rather than chase people that are harder to find, the ghosts in the manufacturing side and the distribution side, now we're, we're focused more on the Internet, both in China and in the U.S. and other markets, where we can grab websites and we can take possession of the websites, take them down, get them out of the marketplace. We can go after the funds um, through PayPal and through other uh, in credit card companies, and really attack and and you know pull that stuff out of the marketplace so that um, consumers don't see as much of it. And it also sends a message to the counterfeiters that we're very aggressive. The golf industry is aggressive, and if you're going to counterfeit in the golf industry, you've got some exposure. And you know, their counterfeiters tend not to be very selective. They look for where they can make money and where they have the least exposure. If if you're aggressive in attacking them, maybe they'll back off and and maybe not be so interested in counterfeiting in your space. It makes makes perfect sense to to mark your territory like that. But when you're fighting a war like this, Joe, you've got a ground war against the manufacturers, you've got an air war against the, the websites where these counterfeit sites are sold. I know sometimes it can feel almost like a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, for every one you get, three more pop up because greed is a pretty basic human emotion, and, and there's always going to be people who are willing to sell a, a fraud. How do you measure success in, in a war like that? I mean, your client sees the cost. The company sees what they're spending on it. How do you measure the success so that you can show that you're winning and that you're getting a return on your investment for, for these efforts? You know, that is a really tough thing, and we get that question all the time, and it's, and it's a really hard one to answer um, because, you know, when you, if you think about the, the counterfeit products, probably if they're, not in the, if they're not competing against legitimate product at retail, um, you know, you, it's really hard to say, well, I lost sales because of the counterfeit market. What you, what you can say, though, is that if the consumer, if you create a consumer awareness that this product that's out there is not at, to the same standards, it's not the same quality levels, there's, there's actually some danger in using those products sometimes, um, and, you, and you get the mentality of the consumer changed a little bit that this is this is a seri this is a crime and that there's there's a real issue here um, we think that is something that enhances our brands and and creates a different uh, 
a different way of thinking about this problem in the, in the consumer's mind. And that's where we think is, is the really important thing. It's, it's the consumer at the end of the day that, that allows this market to exist. And if we can change the consumer's thinking about counterfeits and get them to understand that there's a real problem here, then that's where we think the real benefit is. Understood. Thank you. Now, I want to get to some recent uh, events that have taken place at a cushion that, that I know you were involved in and, and sort of exciting news for the company. But before we go forward, I want to go backwards a little bit because you did mention earlier uh, in uh, the discussion your time with Fortune Brands. Uh, and that, I know, is uh, at that time, as you said, owned a, a diverse set of consumer products, uh, including the golf division, but also Master Lock and Moen Faucets. You'd mentioned uh, Jim Beam. I guess if you put all that together, Jim Beam, golf equipment, hardware, it's pretty much a man cave all, all in one company. But um, how did those? How did your work with these other types of consumer products, like a Master Lock or a Moen Faucet, uh, how, how did those present you with perhaps different types of, of challenges that you're facing now on the legal front in, in very high-end golf equipment? Well, the, the commonality, obviously, is that it's all consumer goods, and so um, you've got distribution issues, you've got manufacturing issues, you've got, in some cases, product liability issues, those kinds of things, and you've got intellectual property issues across all of those, um, those kinds of companies. The difference uh, is really that in the, in the distilled spirits business and in the tobacco industry, which Fortune Brands used to be in, um, those were regulated industries, and so you had to be very, very careful about how you how you went to market uh, to make sure that you didn't run afoul of of any of the of the issues there. Um, golf products they're regulated, but not as heavily and not in the same way as as those kinds of industries. So, um, you know, it, I, I was able to to draw from the differences that. I experienced in terms of distribution and those kinds of things, um, but also was able to, now that we're regulated in the sense of being a public company, was able to draw from some of the lessons from distilled spirits and uh, and tobacco as well. That's, that's a good point you make about being regulated even in the golf industry. I, I, I got to ask you, who's easier to work with, the FDA or the PGA? Well, the two bodies that regulate golf in terms of the rulemaking are the USGA and the RNA, the Royal and Ancient. Um, and we have very strong relationships. I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last 15-plus years um, as, as part of my portfolio to build relationships with those organizations. And um, we, we think we have very strong relationships with them. Obviously, um, you know, they set the rules, um, but we, we have – both individually as a company and as an industry, um, we've worked really hard to establish some protocols and some some ways of thinking about um, rulemaking and and some some uh, ways that they uh, we agree in terms of how the rulemaking process will happen if it's going to affect equipment. And so we've made a lot of progress there, and, and we feel like we've got a a, a very strong. Um, base with the the rulemaking bodies in terms of uh, having a voice and, and being, being able to communicate with them. Well, that's great. I'm sure the meetings are, are much more collegial than perhaps you might have with somebody sitting behind a gray metal desk in Washington someplace. Um, 
Let's turn now to the, the, the news, uh, sort of the, one of the most recent and, and important developments in, in your company, and that's the IPO that was uh, launched last year. Now, obviously, going public is an enormous undertaking for an entire company and particularly for, for your in-house legal department. Um, talk to us a little bit about when you started planning for the move, what your immediate thoughts were, when the decision was made, and they came in and said, okay, now you, you've got to run this project, you've got to captain the ship. Yeah, back in 2011, uh, Fortune Brands made the decision to divest uh, the company, and uh, we went through an auction process at that time, and, and the, the winner of the auction was a consortium of Korean investors, uh, Fila Korea, and, and then three uh, Korean private equity companies. And from the very start, they, at least the, the private equity part of that consortium, um, was determined that they wanted to to hold this investment for a for a period of time of about five years, and that they wanted to exit through an IPO. So that was part of our understanding at the very beginning, and so we kind of always had it in the back of our minds that we would be dealing with this issue in the in the not too distant future. Um, so probably a little over two years ago is when we actually started. The process of addressing the IPO and having the bankers starting to—they all, all the bankers uh, knew that that was that this time horizon and the exit strategy, and so they started coming on knocking on the doors about two years ago. And so we've really been addressing this issue for you know over two years prior to going public in October of last year. Well, it's great that you had more time to think about it than maybe than, than some general counsel get. What were some of the biggest hurdles that you faced as the process moved along, Joe? And were any of them sort of surprises to you, something that you didn't expect to be an issue and, and but it grew to be? Well, you know, the biggest issue for us as the as the issuer was to really um, try to manage all the competing interests. We had some exiting shareholders. And we had a shareholder that was long and hold and wanted to stay in and acquire more shares. Um, we had the banks with their interests. Um, you know, the company itself, um, you know, needed to keep operating its business. Um, so all those diverse interests um, really was was the biggest issue for me and, and for the company in trying to, to manage those and navigate through this thing in a way that, Everybody got something of what they wanted, but um, we didn't do any damage to the to operation of the company in the process. It's interesting. If you were to give some advice to another general counsel who's about to, to go through this same process, what advice would you give to her or to him about how to manage these competing and, and diverse interests from the various stakeholders in the process? My my advice would be to to hire the best advisors you can find. Um, you, you need two advisors in particular in my mind. One is you need an advisor um, that is the company's advisor um, for the IPO that has experience advising companies and helping the companies with their dealings with the banks and with the shareholders um, and even with counsel. And then secondly hire the best counsel you can find because uh, issuers counsel in uh, in these situations uh, I found that there's indispensable and um, 
and they are the best tool in making sure that the company's interests are protected as we go through the process. Understood, and that, that makes total sense. And it kind of reminds me, as you mentioned again, in terms of bringing in these you know, counselors and outside resources, it ties in, I think, with some of the things you've talked about with the anti-counterfeiting group, which is that you are somebody who, it seems to me, knows how to leverage the resources around you to help you realize success and achieve goals with efficiency. Is, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is that something that you, you sort of adopt as an ethos or, or a working process for you? Yes, I think that, that fairly early on um, that became, like you said, an ethos or a, an operating principle that I adopted um, with the thought that um, if, you can, if you can marshal resources that you're not spending all the money on or you're, you know, you're sharing the cost with other people, um, that you get a couple of benefits from that. One, you get critical mass in terms of in the anti-counterfeiting area, for instance. We've got the whole industry that when we as an industry speak People are going to listen, um, the enforcers, the, the police, the judges, in, in differently than they're going to listen to one individual brand owner. So you've got the power of, of an industry. And then secondly, you're able to, to share the cost and be able to do more um, with the same or less money. Uh, so I've always kind of thought that anytime you have an opportunity to leverage uh, an organization, um, be part of a bigger, something bigger, um, in most in most cases, it, it pays dividends. That's a good lesson for sure. Thank you. Our time is together is coming to a close, sadly, but what I'd like to do and what we typically do at this point in the show is, is to close with a series of relatively rapid-fire questions in which my job is to not swallow my tongue or the microphone, and your job, if you choose to accept it, is, is to answer not on the spur of the moment, but relatively quickly, and it's sort of a rapid fire around. Are, are you up for it? I'm up for it. Let's All go. All right, let's talk some more golf, because that's probably what everybody really wants to talk about, because you work in golf. So I have to ask you, what is the favorite course that you have ever played anywhere in the world? The old course at St. Andrews. The one and only. you got to start there. You cannot go wrong with that answer. Now, you must have a favorite golf movie. You a tin cup person, Caddyshack. Where, where do you fall on, on the... Uh, on the, the golf movie scale? I'm going to throw you a bit of a curb there with something that's a little obscure. The greatest game ever played. That is. It's a movie about the battle between Francis Wimette and Harry Varden back in the 1913 U.S. Open. Oh, you went esoteric on me. I was looking for, you know, maybe some Bill Murray and some Caddyshack references, but that was that was really very highbrow. But, uh, that well, Bill, Bill, Caddyshack is always a great... Uh, everybody's go-to in the golf industry, and I do love that movie, but uh, I do love this one as well. Well, that shows that you are an aficionado and I am a bore, but that's probably self-evident by this point in any case. Now, there is I saw an article, just not the most recent one, but the Sports Illustrated last, in which they talked about how many golfers have shot 62 or lower on the PGA Tour, hundreds of times, 400 and some times, and yet in one of the four majors, no one has ever shot less than a 63. And the discussion in the article was, is anyone ever going to shoot less than a 63 in a major? And if so, who would do it and at which course would they do it? So let me ask you your opinion. 
who, if anyone, is going to break 63 in a major and at what course? I'm going to take a real flyer here, and I'm going to say that, that Jordan Spieth is going to do it at Augusta National. Jordan Spieth is a good choice. That is a good choice. Um, getting away from golf, to, to the distress of everyone, I'm sure, but getting away from golf, just generally, a, as an attorney, um, what is the most interesting transaction you've ever worked on, and, and why did you find it so? I would say that the, the IPO process that we just went through has to be the most interesting. Why? Um, there's so many different things going on. As I said before, there are so many competing interests and um, and moving parts, and you've got to pay attention to all of them. Um, and it's it's a very intensive process, both for the legal department and the and the finance group. Um, and I found it to be to be challenging, intriguing, interesting, um, and and intense. And even better when it works out well, I guess. Well, we we successfully launched. Uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, and, uh, you know, that's a pretty great day, and, and everybody was pretty pleased, so, um, you know, we would have to consider that a success. All right. Speaking of success, please finish this sentence for me. This is one of those finish this sentence questions. My success to date has been primarily due to my what? Um, I would say my mental strength. Um, I've always been a big advocate of of having mental strength and mentally strong people, I think, um, are people that can get stuff done. And um, not to blow my own horn, but I think that is, that's one of the things I bring to the table. All right. Last one. Name someone in the law or in business that you have not worked with, but that you really admire and would like to work with someday. I would have to say Elon Musk. Ah, yeah, there you go. An IP over two there. I think... He's really stepped out outside of anybody's comfort zone and, and used his, the opportunities that he had with the, with the money he's had um, to, to really do some some really interesting things and um, and things that hopefully we'll all be better off for in the long That's run. That's a great answer. And, and actually, Joe, all of them were great answers. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I really enjoyed speaking to you. Well, folks, that will wrap up this edition of the Legal Innovators Interview Series. So be sure to join us next time when we speak to another leader in the general counsel field. Until then, I'm Craig Mills. Thanks for listening.